0: What's going on, everybody? I'm Jeff St. Pierre, and this is episode 107 of the Adult Education Podcast. This week, I'm speaking with gut expert Dr. Robin Chutkan. Thanks so much for checking out the show. I really do appreciate you taking time out of your day to listen to adult education. And this show is all about learning new things or maybe learning more about some topics you're already familiar with. I speak with experts across all fields to learn more about health, education, technology, mental health, and really just about anything that I find interesting. If you'd like to support adult education, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. And if you like what you hear, please share it with your friends. I love how word of mouth can inspire new people to check out the show. So this is called adult education. So today, you're about to step into gut health 101. One thing you may have heard me say in previous episodes of this podcast is that I wish I had learned some of these things in school. Like where was this information? I feel like mine and the health of so many others would be better if we had learned some of this basic information. Now today's conversation falls right in line with that. I'm speaking with Dr. Robin Chutkan. She's a gastroenterologist and has become one of the biggest voices in promoting gut health and a healthy microbiome. The more I read about this and the more that I learn about gut health the more I wish I had learned about it when I was younger but in this case this is all relatively new information we just didn't know a lot about the microbiome and gut health back when I was in high school some 20 plus years ago it just wasn't available but the information is there now and we need to be listening in today's episode of the Adult Education Podcast, Dr. Chuck Han and I talk about her new book, The Antiviral Gut, Tackling Pathogens from the Inside Out. It's important to have a healthy gut. That can help you feel better in so many different ways because it really all starts with the gut. But Dr. Chuck Han is here to explain how having a healthy gut can also help us ward off other diseases and help us battle things like COVID and other illnesses. This is one of those books that I sincerely hope people pick up because the information can be so helpful, even life-changing in some regards, especially as we're in the middle of Eating season right now and getting towards the new year when a lot of folks are going to pledge to be better. This book can give you a million more compelling reasons why you should be eating better and have a healthier gut.
1: Hi, Jeff. Hey,
0: how are you? I wanted
1: to say hi. I'm well. Thanks. How are you?
0: I am doing great. Uh, thank you so much for your time today. I'm very excited for this conversation. Me too. Dr. Robin Chutkin, I'm very excited for this book. It's called The Antiviral Gut Tackling Pathogens from the Inside and Out. I never realized how important the gut was and i think a lot of people are in the same boat as me and the first time i really started to learn more about the gut and the microbiome was really a couple years ago when i heard an interview with uh dr will b i could never say his last name right so we'll switch
1: thank you i'll (laughs)
0: let you handle that so i heard him talking about it and i was like wow there's some fascinating stuff going on here that i've never heard before like i never heard about it in a health class i never heard about it from a doctor or anything all these years why
1: don't we learn more about that? You know, it's a whole new frontier in medicine, Jeff, this idea of the gut and the microbiome, but I want you to do something. I want you to look down at your gut. Okay. Okay, yeah. where is it?
0: I I mean I guess I always assume like stomach, right? Like that's kind of my Right,
1: but but look where it is in your body. It's in the center sure. of your entire body. It's the engine, right? So we can take the gut and we can draw spokes going up to the brain, going out to the heart, to the lungs, to the musculoskeletal system, everything. So it is, you know, it really is like the engine for your whole body. So if you got into your car and I don't know, the transmission wasn't working, you'd probably still be okay if the brakes were a little soft, but if your engine isn't working, you are going nowhere, You know, your car is broken down. So the gut really is an engine for the entire body. And it's really taken us a long time. I mean, I finished medical school about 31 years ago. And I'll tell you, when I decided to go into gastroenterology, my classmates were like, why do you want to wade through stool? You know, there was just no sense that the gut, that 70% of the immune system is physically located in your gut that your gut is where the neurotransmitters are made for your brain to work, that the gut is where the serotonin is made, the feel-good hormone that the gut trains your immune system, that microbes in the gut actually turn genes on and off. I don't think there was any awareness of that. So the gut is definitely having a moment.
0: I remember around the same time I heard that interview, I also started seeing an integrative health doctor and she kind of walked me through a lot of different things. And you know, I did a lot of blood tests and I was trying to figure out why why my health seemed to be deteriorating when I wasn't doing anything different that I was doing five to 10 years ago, but for some reason it just started to hit me really hard. And uh, we started to do some tests. Remove dairy from the diet. And it was fascinating how much that changed my overall health. I wasn't lactose intolerant. I never tested positive for that. Same with sort of like a gluten thing. Like I don't, I have no gluten sensitivity, but taking it out of my diet, just the way my body felt, I was like, wow, it's amazing what these little things can do to impact you and how much they change the way you feel overall.
1: That's so true, Jeff. And I'm so glad you brought up those two foods because. You know, there is a sense that, oh, it must be an allergy or an intolerance. But if you line 100 people up against the wall and have them all remove gluten from their diet, 50% of them are going to feel better. Mm. And that's true for dairy too. So if we take a deeper dive into these foods, so what is dairy exactly? Dairy is the milk that a postpartum cow produces to feed her young calf. Mm. And there's no precedent anywhere in the animal industry for one animal to be suckling, you know, the adult of another animal. I mean, that's what it is. We're kind of suckling a postpartum cow. I mean, it sounds kind of gross, but but that is what it is. So We are not designed to continue to be able to digest dairy as we get older. And even if we're not officially lactose intolerant, the truth is that 70% of the world's population really doesn't handle dairy well. As we get older, the enzyme, the lactase enzyme that breaks down lactose that's found along the brush border of the gut, we lose it over time. And the really interesting thing, Jeff, is if you've had infections that have affected your gut in the past, whether a traveler's diarrhea or anything like that, a stomach flu, you're even more likely to lose that enzyme. So dairy is really meant for baby calves. If we think about gluten, the way gluten is created, we know it's a protein that's in wheat, rye, and barley, but the way a lot of these wheat products are made, they're highly processed. We're not eating wheat that's coming straight out of the ground. We're eating wheat that often is has been hybridized and things have been done to it to make it grow in a certain way. Dwarf wheat that's easier to to harvest. And these products are really highly processed and our small intestine really doesn't know what to do with these highly processed refined grains. So the point you made of just taking it out, and and the cool thing is if you don't have celiac disease, which is an actual autoimmune disease, an allergy to the gluten and wheat rye barley, and if you're not super gluten intolerant, you don't need to take it out 100%. You know, like I would say I avoid gluten probably 90% of the time, but every now and again, I just want a bite of that piece of cake or, you know, a nibble of an almond croissant to remind me how delicious it is. And our daughter, who's a really good cook, has managed to create like really great gluten-free versions of the, some things. She made pumpkin gnocchi for us mm. with gluten-free flour and it was fantastic. So it's really trying to eat less processed food in general. And dairy and wheat are two really great examples.
0: I don't want to harp on this for too long because I know your book is a little bit more about uh, you know, antivirals some more about illnesses and things and how our gut can really help us fight, fight those sicknesses. But I do want to point out one more thing. When I, when I removed dairy, I'm a lifelong asthmatic. So I have asthma as long as I can remember. Even like a child, I remember taking pills and you know, all sorts of things before I could handle an inhaler. I had everything growing up. And when I removed dairy, I found an instant relief. And I mean, I went, I I usually will use my inhaler. I would say on average once a day, I went to not using it for an entire month because I, and I, it was right after I moved dairy and I never, I never was told that from a doctor before. Like it was like 37 years of my life of this. And I'm like this, you could have helped me so many years ago.
1: No, that, that is absolutely true. And I'll tell you a little bit about that asthma gut connection. We know that we inherit our microbes from birth when we pass through that birth canal and we swallow a mouthful of microbes. And we know that babies born via C-section are more likely to have asthma, autoimmune diseases, allergies, as well as obesity, childhood obesity, as a result of missing out on that passage. So we know that some of these diseases foundationally are set really at the moment of birth. Breastfeeding, there are things in breast milk, human milk, oligosaccharides that feed our burgeoning microbiome. And we know that those first thousand days after birth are really critical. That's when the microbiome is at its most tender. That's when antibiotics, acid blocking drugs, things like that can really have an effect. So it would be be so interesting to chat with your mom, Jeff, and I definitely don't want her to feel guilty (laughs) about any of this stuff, but to find out, you know, this is what I do with my patients. Were you a C-section baby? Were you breastfed? Were you exposed to acid blocking drugs, antibiotics, things like that early in life because that's the exact story of my teenage daughter and how I got really interested in this as a conventionally trained gastroenterologist, how I got interested in the link between manifestations of disease and the microbiome because she was a C-section baby Mm got antibiotics at birth because I had a fever, minimally nursed because my breast milk dried up, and she embarked on basically two years of antibiotics every month. She'd had two dozen courses of antibiotics before she was in preschool, and she was a very sickly child, getting colds and coughs all the time. She was diagnosed with asthma on one visit, and that's when I was like, "Uh uh-uh, okay, we're changing course. We are packing up all the stuff, we're putting it in the attic, and we're taking a different approach. And of course, I realize that as a physician, I'm in a position to make that decision. I'm not suggesting people stop going to the doctor. But I am suggesting that people ask their doctors some really critical questions like, is that antibiotic absolutely necessary? Because what we know is that five to seven days of a broad spectrum antibiotic can remove a third of your gut microbes. And if you're getting that at a young age, those may never come back. So we see this link between early use of antibiotics, autoimmune diseases, et cetera. What I wanted to say about the dairy and asthma is we know that consuming dairy on a regular basis as adults can change a composition of our mucus. And so you are not alone in finding that correlation between stopping dairy, the asthma being better, lots of people find fewer sinus infections, et cetera. So that's, that's a clear link.
0: Yeah, it was fascinating. That and I also realized sugar. Like if I have a piece of candy, I can Instantly feel that like if I have a piece of candy 10 minutes later, I'm like, "Ooh, I'm really having a hard time breathing here. It's really weird how quickly that will impact my breathing. It's very interesting. But I know one of the big things you do talk about in the book is medication and how a lot of medications, as you just mentioned, can really mess up the microbiome. It can really mess up our gut health. And I'm not accusing doctors of taking the easy road out, but sometimes, you know, throwing an antibiotic at somebody is just kind of like, okay, this is how I know it's going to f- fix the problem or whatever. That might be the easiest way to go, whereas maybe it's not the right way to go. And that I find that very interesting.
1: There's a study from the journal Pediatrics from several years ago that shows that pediatricians prescribe antibiotics about 62% of the time when they perceive a parent wants an antibiotic for their child mm-hmm. and 7% when they don't. So that's an incredible amount of gray zone, right? Between really the antibiotic being necessary and not. So I'm always telling people, you know, be the kind of patient who makes it clear that you'd prefer not to take an antibiotic unless absolutely necessary because the damage that these drugs do, you're absolutely right, Jeff. You can't just go to the store and take a probiotic and think that you're squared away. They do lasting damage. And over time, if you combine frequent antibiotics, other medications like acid blockers, steroids, immune-suppressing drugs that mess up the microbiome, a highly processed Western diet with not enough fiber, lots of sugar, limited exposure to the outdoors. You start to add it all up, and we start to see how these diseases are made. They're created by some of these things that we're doing.
0: My daughter is turning two pretty soon, so I've been in and out of doctor's offices just with you know regular checkups here and there. And One thing that I have noticed is that the doctor will ask. The doctor asks questions like, like, do you want XYZ? Do you? And, like, I don't, do I? I mean, you're the doctor. Like, I, I, sh- you shouldn't be asking me that question. Like, I, you should be telling me what I need, you know? And I find that that's been an interesting shift in recent years. And, and I assume a lot of that has to do with how sensitive people are nowadays and the lawsuits that can happen. But I just, I'm like, you're, you tell me you know a lot more than I do about this. I
1: could, I could see how that could be a little disconcerting, but I think it does reflect the increasing awareness that physicians have about the fact that these drugs aren't really necessary. And the next step beyond that is that not only are they not necessary, but they're often harmful. So I think if they're offering it up as an option for your... Little baby girl, I would pass whenever you can. That would be the advice I give you.
0: Thankfully, she's been pretty healthy. It's just something that I've observed, you know, just, you know, noticing the way the questions come where I'm like, you should be telling. Like, there shouldn't be an asking. You should be telling, you know. Uh, But something else that popped up during COVID specifically is, and, and one of my coworkers is a perfect example of this, he would swear up and down that because he ate a good diet and because he took certain vitamin supplements that he was immune from COVID. And I I know how health works. Like, I get it. Like, I'm sure the healthier people we saw did not have the same impact of COVID that, say, someone that was unhealthy. Um, But I was like, you know, you can still catch it. You just might not have it the same way that somebody else does. And he'd walk around like Superman. Like, I don't care. I can't get anything. And I'm like, I don't know. So settle this bet for me. Could he still catch it?
1: He could still get it. But if he is a healthier host he's less likely to be really sick. So basically, it's this combination of Louis Pasteur's germ theory okay. that says a bad bug gets into our body. In this case, SARS-CoV-2 makes us sick. And another Frenchman, Antoine Béchamp, who championed terrain theory, who said that if your soil is healthy, and I think this is what your friend is referring to, if you've got a healthy gut, healthy microbiome, the seed, the germ, can pass harmlessly through your body, through your soil, without doing a lot of damage. So he absolutely can get COVID. But again, we have a study from the researchers at UMass in 2021 that showed that the health of the microbiome is the most accurate predictor of outcome from COVID. So it can predict who ends up on a ventilator, who ends up on the IC- in the ICU, who ends up dying from COVID. So in that sense, your friend is right. That, you know, people who have a healthier microbiome, healthier gut, healthier habits are generally going to have a better outcome. Now, it's not 100 percent, right? Nothing in life is. So there are going to be exceptions.
0: I feel like that's the case with many diseases, though, right? I mean, the healthier the person is overall, the less likely the disease is going to take them down.
1: You are absolutely you could go hang a shingle. I think you should hang a shingle. you're so sensible. <laughs> Nobody like, you've needs got that great <laughs> advice you've got great advice here, but you're absolutely right, Jeff. So think about it. If you are an eighty five year old and you have obesity and you're a smoker and you're sedentary and you're diabetic and you're hypertensive and you have a stroke, you're not going to have the same outcome as a twenty five year old ultra runner who's you know out there eating tons of salads right and has healthy habits so if I could summarize a book in one sentence, it would be the health of the host matters. Yeah. And it matters often more than the potency of the pathogen. I mean, if you think about, think about poliovirus, in 0.5% of the time, poliovirus gets into the body, it penetrates the gut lining, it travels through the bloodstream to the central nervous system, and it causes devastating flaccid paralysis. Mm. But what about the other 199 people? who have polio and are either asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic and make a full recovery. That is not random. If we look at Ebola, one in three people who are infected with Ebola get sick. Mm -hmm. The other two out of three end up not, actually having an active infection. It's a much smaller percentage in childhood. And so this stuff is not random. There are things about us as hosts and not suggesting that this is anybody's fault or they're to blame if they get sick, but really empowering people and saying, hey, here are some things that you can do to be a healthier host, to be more resilient, because the reality is these pandemics are getting more and more common. We're seeing them more frequently in the last 50 years. There have been 30 different new viruses for which we have no cure. Mm. Not just SARS-CoV-2, but HIV, Ebola, lots of different ones hepatitis C. So these things are becoming more common for a variety of reasons. And we need to become more resilient. We need to pay attention differently from how we were to really pay attention and think about what we can do.
0: Because you just touched on it. I've heard you talk about this before. So I I do believe we're on the same page here. Health of the host is very important, but that does not mean that some extra protection like a vaccine is not important.
1: I'm so glad you mentioned that. Absolutely not. These things are parallel. These are things to do together. So you can think about vaccines and social distancing and masking when that's appropriate as external things that we can do. And we can think about our terrain as what we can do internally. And we need both for sure.
0: Another phrase I've heard you talk about is the Goldilocks immune system. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Sure. You know, when I was in medical school, the immune system was a sort of ephemeral thing. Like what exactly is it? It's these sort of humors and cells floating around. But again, 70% of it, 70 to 80% is in your gut. And I like to divide the immune system up into internal threats and external threats, and then overactivity and underactivity. So let's talk about an overactive immune system and internal threats we're really talking about autoimmune disease there, where your body starts to react to your own tissues and joints. So in the case of rheumatoid arthritis, that would be joints. In the case of Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, it would be your gut bacteria. In the case of psoriasis or eczema, it would be your skin. So your body is, your immune system is overreacting to internal threats to your own body. In terms of external threats, that would be severe allergies, like anaphylactic shock after a bee sting. That's a sign of an Overactive immune system reacting too much to an external mm-hmm. allergen. We talk about underreactivity, internal threats. We're talking about cancer because our immune system doesn't just protect us from infection. It's also our cancer surveillance system. And so when a cell starts to reproduce a little abnormally and the genetic material in it starts to become abnormal and you start to see the beginnings of cancer, normally our immune system would root that cell out and kill it but that when that doesn't happen, the internal threat is cancer and the external threat from an underactive immune system is infection, Mm -hmm. viral, bacterial, parasitic. So we want that Goldilocks immune system where we're not having autoimmune diseases and severe allergies, and we're not having cytokine storm, which as you know, is that overreactive immune system that's killed a lot of people. It's for a lot of people, it's not been SARS-CoV-2. It's been the immune system overreacting to it that's destroyed lung tissue and heart tissue and led to serious illness and death. So we want to not have an overactive immune system and we want to not have an underreactive immune system because we don't want to end up with cancer or being unable to clear infection And it really is the health of the gut microbiome that modulates and guides the immune system and gets you to that Goldilocks response.
0: The more we talk about this and the more that I've read through your book, I know that we mentioned earlier that the microbiome research and the gut research is still fairly new, all things considered. But if somebody had laid this information out to me 20 years ago, you know, in a health class or whatever it may have been, I can just think of how different my life may have been. You know, like I've always had, I've always been a little overweight and I've always had doctors that would say to me, you could use to lose some weight. I'm like, well, great. That's a good piece of advice, sure. But if they had told me why, like if they had told, explained to me why eating this would be good or why not eating that would be good or like cutting out dairy would be better for my asthma, my life would have been exponentially different. And I just wonder like, this is a rhetorical question, I suppose, but why don't we inform people more about this?
1: you know 20 years ago jeff we can say people really didn't know i mean 17 years ago when my daughter was born i didn't know about the incredible danger of all these antibiotics she was being given and and all of this stuff but you know i wrote my second book the microbiome solution which is all about this in 2015 and you know it's been 7 years and we're still seeing a lot of these things haven't changed we're still super sanitized our food is still highly pesticized and processed so There's something about this that is not getting out there from the medical community. I'll tell you what, though, it's getting out there from other people. Mm -hmm. So, if we look at the podcasting community, and there are lots of people who don't have an MD behind their name, but they're putting out good, sensible health information. Some people are putting out misinformation. Sure, that's the challenge. There are lots of people (laughs) who are putting out. And what I tell people is if this person's not trying to sell you something, take a listen. If this person, there's a quick pitch. Maybe not so much, right? what yeah. What is this person's real intention? Is it to sell a product, a supplement, or is it really to give you good information? So I think that can be helpful. I mean, sometimes there's overlap. But we really didn't know a lot about this stuff. And here's the other thing now. We're in an era where the average consumer may be better informed than the average physician. Huh. I would wager if I were a betting person, I would put my maximum bet down a nickel. That you probably know more about the effect of gluten and dairy on your body than a lot of physicians. Mm. And that's a little bit scary when you think about it, right? Because it's like, aren't you the one who's supposed to be in charge of me? But I think what it speaks to is this idea that we have to be better advocates for our own health. And sometimes we have to disagree with our doctors or challenge them, and we have to go out and get the information. And that's the whole point of a book like this, is really to put the information in the hands of the people so that they can have the power to be more resilient, to decrease their susceptibility, and ultimately, not just to viruses, but to be more resilient in general and to have less disease.
0: What I also love about your book, now that you mentioned that too, is that It's very easy to read. I I know we're talking about scientific stuff. We're talking about health stuff. And sometimes there's going to be some big words. There's going to be some things that I'll be honest with you. I read a lot of books like this. And sometimes my eyes glaze over after a point where I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so much information. I have to take a break. I have to come back to this. Your book reads very well. Like I... I found myself being able to take in the information, retain it and understand it without having to go get a dictionary and be like, oh, wait, right. wait, what, what is that book? That I, <laughs> you know. So I, I appreciate the way that you wrote it and put it together because it is very uh, layman friendly. It's very user friendly.
1: Thank you so much for that. I, I worked hard on that. And the other thing is, I didn't want to make it too big. This is one of the shortest of my four books. And I wanted the whole second half of the book is the plan. And I really wanted to focus on those actionable steps, those practical things that you can do and not overwhelm people. Like, it's like, okay, I get it. I need to sleep. I want you to tell me how to sleep. And that, you know, those actionable steps are really important.
0: And when you say practical, like we're talking about things like breathing. Again, one of those things that until a couple of years ago, when I really sort of dove into this podcast world and started speaking to people like yourself, i never realized how important just some deep breathing was for my body. Like I never understood. And now it's like, wow, that's so easy. Where the hell has this been my entire life?
1: And the belly breathing, right? The yes. difference, like if you take a breath in your chest, you're like... You can feel the stiffness and the you know, the tension versus the belly breath, where, I mean, yeah, it makes you look like you have a little bit of a bare belly. That's ok. That's how you're supposed to breathe. And that kind of breath really helps to trigger your parasympathetic nervous system and calm you down as opposed to the sympathetic nervous system that revs you up. It really, I mean, so much of this stuff is like simple advice that our grandmothers would have given us. It really is.
0: It really is. I mean, I, I've i always, well, I shouldn't say I've always, but I used to have a really hard time going to sleep. My stress levels were very, you know, off the charts. My, core, my, my hours are very strange. So I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning for work every day. So I'm trying to go to bed at a decent hour, but it's life. It's hard to go to bed at 7 o'clock at night when I should to get my full eight hours of sleep. So my... Cortisol levels were wild. So I would have a hard time sleeping. I'd be stressed out a lot. And when somebody kind of sat me down and told me, now what they told me was seven seconds in, seven seconds out. So really, like, I will do that. I'm telling you, I can't even get to the third count before I'm already asleep. I'm like, wait, what just happened? Why am I waking up four or five hours later? And it's just something so simple. And, again, if I had known that when I was in, say, middle school or high school, it would have saved me a lot of sleepless
1: nights. (laughs) I'm so glad you mentioned sleep because a study from the British Medical Journal during COVID showed that there is a whopping 88% increased risk of COVID in people who are chronically sleep deprived. And for every additional hour of sleep you get, that risk drops by 12%. We know vaccines are less efficacious. If you were sleep deprived in the two hours before you get the vaccine, you may have as much as a fifty percent reduction in vaccine efficacy. And I'll tell you, our daughter's a rower, and when she got her vaccine during the summer, there she was rowing in a bunch of regattas and she was up at the crack of dawn. We were traveling all over. And I rescheduled it. I was like, "No, no, you have not slept well in these last two days. We're going to do it next week because I want to make sure this thing is working. So, these are things that we've known about for a while we've known about sleep and vaccine efficacy with influenza and with hepatitis vaccines but you know this message just really isn't getting out there and of course vaccination social distancing you know hand washing masking these things are all really important but i would love to see more public health focus on what the individual can also do for their internal health and you know again that's the whole point of the book
0: I know uh, I'm running out of time with you, so I just need, I have one more question for you about this because I know also one of the things that you say will be helpful for sleep is cutting back or removing caffeine. And I know we always see a lot of stuff about caffeine. I had a doctor that told me I should take it out, and it's been over a year since I've had any caffeine. I still have a decaf once in a while because I like the taste of coffee, but I've removed caffeine from my world. But then you see these studies that come out that tell you all the health benefits of drinking caffeine. So I'm kind of curious from your standpoint, where do you stand on caffeine?
1: Yeah so who are those studies funded by <laughs> almost always uh, almost <laughs> always a coffee maker so here's a deal caffeine in moderation a cup is probably okay but if you have trouble sleeping remember caffeine has a long half life so you could still be feeling the effects of that caffeine up to 6 or 8 hours later so you know if you're having a cup of caffeine uh, some caffeinated drink at 1 or 2 in the afternoon that's going to you're still going to be feeling those effects into the night So particularly if you're somebody who struggles with sleep, you're definitely better off doing, you know, an herbal tea decaf product for sure.
0: Dr. Robin Chutkin, the book is called The Antiviral Gut, uh, Tackling Pathogens from the Inside Out. Uh, I really appreciate this work. I appreciate your time. Is there a place people can go if they want to find out more about you, they want to follow along with your journey?
1: There is Jeff St. Pierre. There (laughs) definitely is. So you can find me on Instagram at gutbliss. You can find me on my website, robinchutkan.com two challenging names to spell, dot com. And the thing I'm really proud about on the site is that we have lots of free information. We have gut guides, we have free office hours. Join me every Tuesday for that. And we also have a free antiviral gut masterclass in February that you can sign up for. We've got a great lineup of experts and all of this absolutely free.
0: Well, Robin, I appreciate you. Thank you for putting this out in the world. It really can be life-changing for so many people. So thank you so much.
1: You're so welcome, Jeff. Thank you for hosting me
0: big thank you to Dr. Robin Chukhan for her time. Her book, The Antiviral Gut, Tackling Pathogens from the Inside Out, is available now wherever you get your books. And thank you to all of you for listening and spending some time with the Adult Education Podcast. Until next time, be well.